baby girl. I'm sorry. Baby girl, you okay? She's just walking around meowing. I love that you can say that to your cat. Like, hey, baby girl, is it all good? Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. Guys, we had another episode that we were going to do, but then like the midterms happen and Twitter's blowing up. <laughs> so we thought, you know what? <laughs> we we, we got to talk about We got to talk about some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so much has been going on the past week or two. Oh, uh, we have a lot to dive into, but before we get into all of that, let's check in. I got to know how are you doing and what are you drinking? I am doing well. I'm drinking some Rowan's Creek bourbon with some nice. tea back because it's chilly in my studio. It's <laughs> yeah. in the 50s at night in LA. Oh, That's very cold in LA. It is cold in LA. So I am here. I have my little heater. In the mornings, like... It's it's really hard to type and work on the computer. It's so cold in oh, here. Anyway, your fingies get cold. My little fingies get cold. Anyway, uh, you know, we're just kind of pottering along. What can I say? <laughs> but you know, actually, my husband and I celebrated our fifteenth anniversary. Wow! And we went away for the weekends. We went away to a little hot springs resort. Uh, in Desert Hot Springs called Two Bunch Palms, which has been around for like a hundred years, like Al Capone stayed there back in the day. <laughs> and it was this totally like hippie hot spring resort, but right before COVID, they kind of renovated it. So it's a little nicer now, which a lot of the hippies are kind of pissed about. And we actually were like um, clothing optional and they were like, no, only bathing suits. <laughs> and I was kind of like, that's kind of bullshit. That's not very hippie. That is. They're not for hippies anymore. But you know what they had? They had, um, in terms of planned activities, they had, uh, you know, yoga, which, uh, yeah, fine, and mm -hmm. wine tasting and like drink wine and paint or whatever bullshit they have. Love that shit. That's, I love that shit. Okay. But they also had past life regression sessions. <laughs> And one Past that was life just... regressions, but you have to wear your bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they had another one that was just called Angel Messages. And Ben was like, isn't that kind of Christian? Like, Yeah, Christian is that messages? to be taken like, literally? Are we, is, like, is, is it really communing with actual like, angels? Angel Messages. Um, but the hot water was very, very nice. And I got to be away from my children for two nights, which I don't think I realized how much I needed until I had it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we watched soccer and read and watched movies and sat in hot water and had some grown-up time where we weren't worried about an 11-year-old just bursting in on us. And that was very nice. Happy anniversary. Thank you so much. That's a big anniversary, the 15th. That's the... Um, it's, it's actually, I looked it up. It's the crystal year. Shut up. It is not it crystal. Is. It that's, that's some kind of newfangled shit. No, it is. It's the crystal <laughs> it's like, year. It's like the graphite year or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my story. All right. And you? How are you doing? What are you drinking? I'm doing all right. I'm doing good. It is getting super cold here, so I'm drinking hot cocoa. Uh, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Does Irish cream liqueur go bad? 
I've had some in my refrigerator since Christmas, last Christmas. I feel like if it's made with any kind of dairy product, then I don't, probably, yeah. I don't even know if it is, though. It's called Irish cream, and it's like creamy, but I don't know if it's made with dairy. I actually don't know that. I don't know what makes it creamy. So I was a little hesitant. I put Sambuca in the cocoa, just to be yeah. safe. But um, listeners, if you know about like how long a bottle of Irish <laughs> cream liqueur can last in the fridge, let me know if I need to dump this one out or if I can just I mean, did drink you it up. taste it or smell it? I smelled it and um, I, w- I felt unsure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, listeners, let us know. Join our Patreon patreon.com slash sauce podcast and come on to our discord channel the sauce speakeasy and talk to us about liqueurs about irish cream and is cream actually involved in it at all does it go bad what does it smell like when it does go bad yes how do we know how it has gone bad i had the craziest thing happen we had these eggs that i left out on the counter and i cracked one and it had gone rotten it was like bright sauron red with like (laughs) purple yolk and the entire kitchen it was like ooh, it was crazy it It was was like saying zool and yeah yeah (laughs) um and actually i want to share some really awesome conversation that we had uh about our latest episode on anti-semitism that comes off the speakeasy. Um, we've been having Please. great conversations about the Twitter blow up that we're about to get into. We've been talking about the midterms, which we're about to get into. Um, but first of all, I just want to thank Marcus Anderson and Ross Eide, uh for their warm feedback on our episode. But also, we had some great feedback from Patrice saying, that something else I wasn't thinking about and wasn't sure if it was going to come up is the experience of intergenerational trauma. The Holocaust is very close to us historically. I work with an amazing survivor um, in 2015 to 2018 who only recently passed. And I definitely have friends who experience the turn up in anti-Semitism as a trigger for that trauma. And I think that's something worth holding space for. And I was really happy to have someone uh, share that perspective. Yeah, that is a really good point. We have a mutual high school friend whose grandparents were survivors, and she's talked a lot about her mom's trauma, you know, not having been a survivor herself, but being raised by survivors. And of course, that's like so much of what the whole book Mouse is about. It It is passed on through the generations, and I think that that my experience of that trauma, because yeah, all of my, um, anyone who made it out made it to Israel. And, mm-hmm. and generally most of the people who survived made it before the war. And you see the trauma, but for a lot of the Israelis, their trauma is performed in this very tough, like suppress yeah. it, sit on it. Right, <laughs> like, right, yeah. It's a different sort of staging of that trauma. Um, but I definitely think that that is very much a part of my parents' life and very much a part of my life. Although my parents say about being Israelis that anti-Semitism is wasted on us because their whole response as Israelis is to be like, Fuck you. So I I definitely have seen and personally experienced the different ways that those uh, tendrils and braids of trauma have 
come out and maybe it's because of my own Israeli like that yeah I mean I imagine when you have the power of the Israeli military behind you you can feel a little more like fuck you anti-semites you know totally I actually that's I hadn't thought about it that way and that's my privilege as someone whose family came to the United States long before the Holocaust. So my family that I know, we're all here in the United States. I mean, but I think that it's true that part of this moment that I think, I don't think we were so flip, but in trying to take responsibility for the white privilege that Jews experience in America, we don't want to be too glib about the feelings that it does trigger that come from very recent trauma. And another point that another listener made is, um, which I think we talked about, I don't know if it made it into the final episode, about the ways that because it is passing out of living memory and the last survivors are passing, that this seems like a particularly vulnerable time for, for how we remember history. Yeah. I will say, growing up, going to... Um, Jewish private schools through sixth grade, going to Hebrew school after school through like eighth grade. Um, it always felt very immediate to me. The Holocaust felt very immediate to me because the, our teachers, the schools went out of their way. Uh, we had survivors come talk to us. Um, my Hebrew school teacher's parents were survivors. She told us in detail these like incredible stories of what happened to them during the war and after. And I never realized that it didn't feel that way to everyone, <laughs> that the greater yes. American population didn't understand the trauma and horror of this and the recency of it. But even since then, you know, 40 years later, it even to me feels less recent and less immediate. And this is something that Elle said, uh, I think for those of us who are over 45, it's that we were raised by the generation that experienced directly. And he says the same thing. Some of my Hebrew school teachers were Holocaust survivors and told terrifying stories about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And he says that's his fear, that as the last generation of survivors disappears, the Holocaust becomes an abstraction rather than a concrete atrocity. Yeah. And it's the same yeah. for slavery, civil war, Jim Crow. Uh, that it yep. makes it harder to address because it becomes this abstraction that's, quote, in the past. And people have a harder time connecting it to the relevance of this present moment. Let's talk about those midterms. Ever okay. since Trump, I have to say, every election, election night, just makes me want to puke all night. I, know, <laughs> I, never, I, I will never recover from 2016 ever as long as I live. <laughs> it's true. And there is definitely like, this is our third election since then. But each time it's like, remember, remember oh, how by the time I got home from work, he had already won these three states. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, but things are a lot different since then. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the major things being the proliferation of mail-in voting, which makes the counting take longer and all of yeah. that stuff. So there's a lot of like, we're going to sit down and watch this election, watch the election results come in like we always have, even knowing that the closest races that we're most interested in the outcomes of, we're not even going to have the answer to. Not for weeks. Not for weeks. Even I got a, a fundraising email from my favorite local congresswoman, Katie Porter, being like, look, guys, the last time we went two years ago, it took weeks for the final number. Yeah. And you're like, 
Thanks, Katie. Yeah, but that didn't stop me from staying up till 4.30 a.m. refreshing my phone, (laughs) (laughs) trying to see if Lauren Boebert just maybe might not get reelected. Well, so let's just talk about some of the high points, my friend. Lauren Mm -hmm. fucking Boebert is probably going to pull this one out, but not by much. Not by (laughs) much. much. As of this recording, she's about 1,100 votes ahead. That's right. you know... I'm an atheist. We were talking about this. Maya and I were like, who do we pray to? Because totally, I, totally. I don't know. I texted Rebecca. I'm like, the amount of times during the day that I find myself just making promises to God. If he only makes Lauren Boebert lose, like, I'm just going to make a cup of tea. I'm waiting for the water to get hot. And I'm like, what do you need me to do, God? <laughs> I'm like... You know, who do I pray to? Science. Science, please make this happen. Goddess, nature, the, the spirits, whatever, pagan, the, the Celtic what spirits, do you need? somebody. But what I think is very exciting about it is that I think that it shows that district that she is beatable. She's vulnerable. And I think that that will mean that a lot of people who might have voted for, for Frisch, who were like, oh, what's the point, are going to be like... Yeah, exactly. And I pay I have been paying more attention to individual house races this time around than I think I ever have. And I noticed how many Republican seats went unopposed. Like Democrats didn't even bother to run anyone in certain districts. And you're like, you know, you never know who could be vulnerable. Well, and that's why one of the best organizations that came out of 2016 is run for something. Yes. You know, like there are a lot of organizations and a lot of um, nonprofits. There's also an organization that one of my friends raises money for that is kind of money ball mathing it for all of these state races, for all of these house races, and they're doing great. Um, I think another notable in terms of like top tasties of the night, (laughs) Kentucky and Montana voting for abortion rights. What? Yes. And um, so in Michigan, not only did they pass an abortion ballot measure, pro-abortion rights, but they also, uh, Democrats won control of both houses of the state legislature and the governor's mansion for the first time in about 40 years. And those things aren't unrelated. The presence of abortion as a direct question on the ballot and the victory of the Democrats in the state legislature and the governor's mansion, it helped in a lot of places to put abortion directly on the ballot. Oh, big time. And another thing that seemed to have a big impact, election deniers lost. Yes, on the whole, yeah. We won secretary of state positions in a lot of places that I don't think anybody ever even cared about that position. Right. And I think there was a heightened awareness of that. Um, We kept the Senate. I think that people hate Herschel Walker so much that I feel good about Georgia's runoff because I feel like Dems will be more motivated to go out than Republicans will. Absolutely. Republicans have minimal reason to want to go out at this point. Why would they bother? Also, there were there were some districts where the Democrats uh, spent some money trying to promote the super Trumpy right wingers in the Republican primaries. And those Trumpy right-wingers won, and then they lost in the general. And there was a lot of questioning around that tactic. It's gratifying to see that those more extreme candidates were not embraced 
by the general electorate, even on this like district level. There's a lot of takeaways here we can feel really good about. But there are also things that are not great. And I want to just okay. touch on those for a second. Um, I think that one of the flip sides of seeing that where abortion was on the ballot, we won, where you are still seeing states that are trying to run Democrats who are middle of the roaders, and they lost. Mm. So there was a woman, Sherry Beasley, who was running in North Carolina, who wouldn't even say the word abortion. She was still stuck in like Hillary 90s, safe, legal, and rare right, right. kind of territory. And there is a guy in the state, Jeff Jackson, who my friend uh, follows because his name is also Jeff Jackson, and he lives in North Carolina. Um, but Jeff Jackson wasn't even allowed by the North Carolina Dems to really primary against her. And he ran as a House uh, candidate on abortion rights, and he won big. Mm -hmm. So um, similarly, Tim Ryan in Ohio, like nobody liked J.D. Vance. and t But Tim Ryan was this very likable guy, but he's also, well, I agree with Trump on trade. Like mm -hmm. the places where the Democrats were trying to be like middle of the road in what could otherwise be swing states, they were not going to get people excited and get people out. And so we could have had 52 or 53 seats. And now we're stuck with J.D. Vance in the Senate for the next six years. And that's disappointing. It is. Although, overall, given the absolutely counter-historical outcomes here, we have no reason but to feel really great about this. I still have a few complaints. Okay. How do people vote for Raphael Warnock and then not for Stacey Abrams. How does anyone fucking vote for Brian fucking Kemp and his stupid, smug, stupid face? And I asked my friend Virginia Heffernan what she thought about that, and she had an answer that I thought was very interesting. Okay. She said that uh, she's right now doing a podcast that's kind of left, right, and center, and she says mm -hmm. the right-wing guy loves, they love Kemp. And she says that Kemp helps get the Trump stink off the party since he kind of, quote, stood up to Trump, which like eye roll, mm. while allowing them to hate Stacey Abrams as a black woman, whom they call an election denier in an effort to both sides and reduce the Trump humiliation of their party. So I can't be for Trump because of the shame and embarrassment and can't get laid, but I still need to be able to subjugate black people using my absolute contempt for women. The code for that Tucker Carlson maneuver is to hate wokeness. Very astute, which is not surprising from Virginia Heffernan. She's absolutely spot on. And it's the same reason that starting on the night of the election, even before all the results were in, you saw all of the, you know, Mike Cernovich and um, Ben Shapiro and all of those pretty hard right head up Trump's ass types were like, Ron DeSantis is the future of the party. Like they were jumping on that. And I think for very similar reasons to what Virginia Heffernan saying about Kemp, he gives you all of the racism, all the white supremacy and whatever else you want, all of the tax cuts for the rich, but it's not Trump. 
it's in this like slightly more and it gives you an out from the things that you realize are so shitty and embarrassing kind of humiliating about having ever been a trump voter right like gives you an out but they present as normal politicians i mean in essence their platforms to whatever fucking extent trump had a platform or maga has a platform or any of these guys have a platform their platform is white supremacy right their platform is exactly anti-wokeness which is code for anti- not whiteness and also anti-women yes and that's another place where you see how misogyny won how mark kelly and secretary of state adrian fontes won in arizona days before they were able to which they just did call governor for katie hobbs and kari lake who's an extremist with the craziest eyes in politics since michelle bachman Mm. got votes from people who still voted for mark kelly and fontes Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And that's just misogyny. Like, they're not going to vote for Blake Masters. They'll vote for Mark Kelly because he's sensible, but they're still going to, you know, vote against Katie Hobbs. They're still going to vote for, like, Kari Lake with her fucking crazy eyes. She's still a woman. Know, they're man. still voting for a woman. Yeah, but they're not going to vote for a Democratic woman. <laughs> this is true. I mean, that Kari Lake woman, she's a, a phenomenon. I guess she used to be a like a local TV anchor. TV and she announcer, just has yeah. that quality of, you know, everything is, she she looks like she's been Photoshopped. No matter when you catch her, what she's doing, she looks like she's been Photoshopped. You know what? She has a bit of a Tammy Faye Baker quality mm-hmm. to her eye makeup. I can see that. Yeah. And also the short hair, but yeah, the eye makeup yeah, yeah. and the, the, the pulled just... Just just within an inch of where it's going to start looking freakish, bit. you know? Just a little bit. I think it's gone over that side. But <laughs> finally, I do want to talk, since you brought him up, I think we have to just say Florida maybe used to be a swing state. We thought it was a swing state. Let us just surrender that. It, it's done. Uh, Florida was the red mirage because it was counted first and fast. Mm. And went so red and DeSantis is a rumpant, triumphant, although my theory on DeSantis, listeners, you heard me first. You can't be that much of a megalomaniac where he's already saying, you know, on the eighth day, God made me all this kind of shit without they're going to there's going to be a bad scandal with him. Like Brian Kemp, I think is like horrible, but can keep it in check. He's corrupt in a very, you know, contained way. DeSantis is a ticking time bomb for like 18 year old boys and meth. Like there is going to be something. It's going to be huge. We just have to be patient. We are going to watch for that. And when it happens, we will say Maya called it. I've seen enough things about cult leaders. (laughs) (laughs) You know how it goes. He's going for the cult leader thing. That's that's what he's trying to do. And so it's just a matter of time. I mean, this is the DeSantis who uh, a couple years ago was running ads about how much he loves Trump. Literally, his TV ads were just... Oh, my God. Do you remember them just talking about... They were the most humiliatingly boot licking like you like, couldn't you can't even criticize them because it's like by calling it boot licking wow you're up trump's ass it's like yeah that was the tagline of the ad was vote for me i'm up trump's <laughs> ass Trump. you know 
And so I guess if you're going to go that far, then you can't really criticize it because you're like, I guess if you're willing to humiliate yourself like it's that. proudly humiliating himself. It was like, it was his badge <laughs> of honor. Oh and God. so, you know, he's distanced himself from that over the past couple of years a little bit because he obviously has these ambitions, more national ambitions. And uh, it's something to keep in mind with the red turn of Florida, though Florida is a red state, and I think it probably always has been. And with COVID, you probably saw a lot of people moving from northern, northeastern blue states into Florida because they didn't like lockdowns and shit. So those are probably conservative-leaning people, and they're they're, uh, bolstering that population. And then there was redistricting. Like, they redrew the lines, and so forget it. Florida is a lost cause. But there's something so entertaining and fascinating to me about watching the conservative media grapple with this, like think that maybe they have found the the guy, the guy who can be Trump without being Trump. And and what's really interesting is that they, they're quoting all these Republicans, uh, like election people being like, oh, we shit the bed on that one. And it's like, yeah, you think taking abortion rights away from an entire half of a country, you think that's a good strat? Like, what did you th- what did you think? What did you think? I mean, my 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 favorite commentaries of all have been seeing people and hearing people say things like, "Well, we have to play dirty like the Democrats." They dangled like abortions in front of the electorate like as if it's some kind of manipulative my, Biden bought people's votes with promises of student loan relief and abortions. And it's like, actually, yeah. actually, those are policies that people really like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not dangling promises. But, but in their understanding of electoral politics, those aren't real issues. Right. Those are ways that the Democrats have manipulated voters into right. not paying attention to the real important stuff like Absolutely. crime, which is at historic lows. And absolutely <laughs> inflation, Absol- historic lows in all of the places where they are trying to claim that it's at historically high right. and like well, crazy. it's at historic lows pretty much everywhere, but it's definitely higher in like red states than it is yes. <laughs> in New York City or any of these places that they want you to believe are crime ridden. That was all propaganda and uh, Republican spin and trying to grasp onto some kind of issue. Um, And they can't get over that the electorate just didn't respond that well. The big, big takeaway is the electorate did respond to Biden's and the Democrats' closing argument of preserving democracy. Yes! Like, it didn't come across as divisive. It didn't come across to voters as uh, ignoring the kitchen table issues that they care about. It actually seems very important to voters. And it's not just an abstraction because abortion is one example of the way that your fundamental democratic rights are being taken away. That's it. So That's it's exactly not just right. some culture war issue that's not related to your everyday concerns. Because it's like, if you're a person who can get pregnant, that's a fucking kitchen table issue. Yes. Like, if you fucking get an unwanted and pregnancy. Forced, forced birth is a kitchen table yeah. issue. Who would have thought, thought that being forced to have a child you don't want might affect your perception of how the economy is working for you? So here's here's something that I want to 
end with on this section, because we talked about DeSantis and, and Trump and these issues and the ways that people think like DeSantis is the one, he'll give us what we want. Mm. So this is the big question. DeSantis is starting to distance himself from Trump. Trump is starting to be like, I can tell all kinds of secrets about DeSanctimonious and starting to talk publicly about how he used the DOJ to protect DeSantis and make him win. You're like, with with my husband, who's a lawyer, I just feel for these people who have to work for him who are like, shut up. Why does it doesn't matter? He has confessed to so many crimes publicly over the years. I mean, and he's also probably lying. He didn't send the DOJ. They don't follow, they didn't follow Trump's orders and they don't follow the president's orders. They didn't go down to Florida to fix an election for him. That didn't fucking happen. He probably tried it. I guarantee you, in fact, that he tried it, but they didn't do it. Regardless, if DeSantis, like, okay, if DeSantis- There's no way DeSantis is not running. That's the thing. There's no way DeSantis is not running. Because- I think absolutely. what does DeSantis stand to gain? Because Trump is is burn it all down. He doesn't give a shit. And what we saw in the primary in 2016 was that you know if you roll in the mud with Trump, you come out muddy, and he's gonna come out on top. They spent all these years building this MAGA movement of people who are obsessed with him. You know, I I'm, I watch Fox News now and then just to get the pulse of the crazies and the lunatics and conspiracy theorists. I got like- You're way more patient oh, I than don't, me. I don't Fuck. watch more than like 90 seconds at a time. But every once in a while I tune in just to try to get a little sense of it. And like I was watching that, um, oh God, what's her name? The Nazi one, Laura, they're all Nazis, but the, the one- Lingra, Laura Ingram, Ingram. Ingram. Laura Ingram saying uh, the populist movement isn't about any individual person. It's about uh, ideas, like, which she's not saying Trump, right? But she's coming as close as she's willing to get to saying, Trump, we're done with you. We want to be done with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But they're not right. The MAGA movement is not a movement of ideas. It is is a cult of personality. It is. Like, that's what it is. It works so well, not just because Trump is so fucking magnetic, because he does play on all of these prejudices and fears yes it plays on people's fear of losing white privilege Uh, their xenophobia he gives them license to indulge in that that is true but it's a combination of him as this charismatic figure and those ideas i don't think you can take the trump out of that picture and get people as excited i think the days of the gop coding anything even slightly are gone Okay, but that is why I think the that these guys are so excited about DeSantis. Yeah. And that's why he felt like his Martha's Vineyard stunt was a home run slam right, dunk, right, even right. though he's under criminal investigation for it. Because I feel like he feels like I'm gonna do I'm gonna do it. I can do it. I can be this guy. I do not think he can. I don't believe he can. But I think he believes he can. And so he's going to run. Well, then he's delusional. And if he had half a fucking brain, he'd just wait till 2028. Just wait. He's got momentum behind him. He's got, he's the king of Florida. 
He's just the, be the king, king of Florida. Florida. He can have a record to run on in four more years. He can say, I got all the Hispanics to vote for me. They're fucking salivating over that in the conservative media. They're yeah. like no, no, so no, know, excited that yeah, Hispanic yeah, yeah, people yeah, yeah, voted yeah. for him. And it just seems very high risk, low reward to put yourself up against Trump. I know that the the pundit class like this idea. I know that the establishment Republicans like this idea. It's just, it's just a reiteration of 2016, by the way. Fox News didn't, and Trump said it himself on Truth Social, Fox News didn't want him in 2016. No. But, you know, no. Lindsey Graham talked about, talked truth about what a piece of shit Trump was. Everyone yep. remembers that. Yep. They all were like, no, we can't be this guy. And as soon as it became clear that he was going to be the nominee, the media and the politicians and the pundit class all fell in line one after another. Yeah. I don't do people remember that at the convention in 2016 at the at the Republican National Convention when Ted Cruz gave his speech after losing to Trump in the primaries. Oh my god. It was like exciting because it was like is he going to actually endorse Trump? And instead he's like Follow your conscience. Yeah, he didn't didn't actually endorse Trump. I mean, fast forward like a week and he's doing the whole song and dance. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's clear that a lot of the, let's call them establishment Republicans, though they might pose as not being that now, they didn't want him. Then they thought they could kind of ride this wave. Okay, you get on the wave. Well, and the whole thinking that they could control him, which is what happened with Hitler, and you're like, "Mm." I think that the uh, pervading thought that the common thinking among them was probably, this will pass. He's not what we want the party to be, but this will pass. This too shall pass. Either he'll lose in 2020 or he'll lose in 2024, and then we'll be done with him and we'll move on with the party. But we'll have all those mailing lists. Exactly, exactly. And we'll have this energized base, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not going to be that easy. Trump wants his four more years, and until he gets it, they're not going to be done with him. I just, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens if DeSantis has the nutsack to actually try to challenge this guy, or I should say the stupidity. That's what I'm seeing. I am seeing, what I'm saying is that I'm seeing DeSantis cross a line into cult leader. You think he's delusional? I, yes, I do. I hope you're right. Yes, I do. I can't tell you I how I feel like he's crossed right. a line into delusional. Okay. I feel like he has. I feel like... And the way that he's got like a messiah complex. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that that's only being encouraged by his party right now, and by all the oh, phone calls he's getting uh-huh. from all kinds of people who are like, "You're the guy. You're the guy. You're the guy. You're the guy." Right. I think. I think that's what I'm saying. Like, I think we're going to see some really entertaining fireworks, and I think to me, DeSantis has crossed the line into messiah complex craziness. And I think there's no way he's going to let that potential power go. No way. I hope you're right, because it's going to be a show to watch. Speaking of megalomaniacs with messiah complexes. Entertaining (laughs) shows to watch. Entertaining shit shows. Uh... I would like to share with our listeners that I have deactivated my Twitter account. I have left. 
I'm sad about this. I wish you wouldn't, but I do understand. And actually not being on Twitter election night Mm -hmm. was very good for my general nervous energy. (laughs) It was a good place to not be Um, on election night. I I understand that, but I feel differently. I, I have trouble imagining getting through an election night without Twitter. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I deactivated and then I experienced and am still experiencing mm-hmm. grief. Like, and I don't want to be like grief. Like Twitter was where all the writers are. It's where all the journalists are. It's where all the academics are. It's where all the most interesting thinkers are. And I had this, these, all of these very brilliant people who I followed who are so wonderful and then all of a sudden some like 17th century textile academic who only writes papers that 20 people read does some astonishing thread on the history of textiles and you're like yeah yeah there is something about twitter that i use instagram but i don't really care about it yeah it's a work tool yeah and i have forgotten about facebook i've forgotten i was ever even on facebook Mm -hmm. but twitter is is was a hard one to let go and yet I have surrendered and I've joined Mastodon, which is just like not the same, but whatever. I'm, I'm there for now. We'll see. Yeah. There's, there are reasons why Twitter is my favorite social media and it, and this, these are the reasons why I haven't quit Twitter yet. In addition to that sort of like, I have front row seats to the Titanic sinking. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to give that up. Like, I, Well, I still have access to our sauce podcast Twitter. So when I need to jump yeah, in and exactly. get a little taste, I can. But what I love about Twitter It has features that no other social media platform has. Uh, Number one, unlike TikTok or Instagram, it is text-based. Like you can post pictures if you want, but it's not picture-based. This is important to me because I don't always feel like taking pictures of myself, showing myself, showing my home. Like, Absolutely. That's a process for me when I want to do that. I'm like, I have to put on makeup or whatever. Twitter is just like, I have a thought and I type it out and it's there. Also, it's very in the moment. You can be talking about election results as they come in. You can be talking about the State of the Union address, the Oscars, the Super Bowl. Like Matt and I were talking just the other day about events, sort of events that happened on Twitter. Oh. Like yes, some yes. Super Bowl related ones, like Left Shark. You remember that one? Yes, that's yes. that's the kind of thing yes. that could only happen on Twitter. Like a bunch 100. of people are watching and notice that the Left Shark dancing behind Katy Perry is just not quite keeping up with the dance moves, <laughs> and it becomes a meme. And like to this day, years later, people know what Left Shark is referring to. The fact that uh, whatever, like jeans and jorts, all yeah. of a sudden jumping from Reddit to being like a Twitter personality. Yeah. Absolutely. Jorts, like Workers of the World Unite. He runs a great account, that cat. <laughs> so the in the moment thing, there's a, a, you pointed out in our episode about Twitter, the conversational nature of it. That is not the same I find on any other social media platform. Like with a TikTok, you can do a response TikTok to someone else's TikTok. With an Instagram, you can comment, but it's not a conversation the way you get on Twitter. And that's right. We like listeners, right. if you haven't heard it, you listen to our episode on Twitter because we go through it's all really of the problems. Yeah. It's a good episode. Mm-hmm. We acknowledge there are many problems with Twitter and there are many ways in which it makes things worse. But for me, in terms of its features as a social media platform, it is the easiest to use it is the most pleasurable and enjoyable i mean it's 
for my the way my brain works, the constant stream of new information and things to look at and read is very gratifying to me. But also there's the like shareability. Like if I tweet something that people respond to, they can retweet it and then other people will see it and they'll like it and they'll retweet it. And you get this kind of reach and you meet new people and new people find out about you in a way that I am too old to understand how that mechanism works on a TikTok or an Instagram. Like you can't yes. reblog, you can't regram, you can regram, but you have to like post it on your Go own Go through another, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah, not yeah, just yeah. like no, you it's... hit the retweet button, then share with everyone yeah, else this and, great tweet. And as someone who was addicted to Twitter, but was mostly a lurker, mm-hmm. like I was mostly a, a signal booster of other people's great shit. Right. Um, and it was very pleasurable. It was very pleasurable to push up ideas yeah. that I liked. Um, and and all of the smart people, the historians of Twitter, there were things that I really like, history Twitter, syllabus Twitter. Yeah. These are the things, the great writers who emerged from black Twitter. Like, yeah. these are the things I treasure, treasure and truly grieve. I think the thing is, is that Twitter, though, the Twitter that we love, the Twitter that we love, that we got addicted to, that you built a following on, Rebecca, Mm. it seems like it's over, no? Like, it's a total disastrous shit show, no? Like, what's going on? Yeah. We did an episode about Twitter not that long ago. And we talked about the potential of Musk buying Twitter and what it was going to be. We speculated about what could go wrong with Musk buying Twitter. And I think it's fair to say we had no idea. Like we were hitting the tip of the iceberg on that one. I don't even know how to describe one of the, I think one of the things that was interesting was that when people were talking about like, oh, we're all stuck with Musk and people were like, no, He's stuck with us. Like, <laughs> we're the ones that produce the content that give it value. And if we decide to make it a total fucked up shit show, he will lose everything. Well, <laughs> that's, like- that's one big piece of it, which is that Musk right off the bat antagonized his users, which I think he intended to do, which we can talk about in a moment in a little more detail. But it, it isn't just like... Uh, Twitter got bad because like a lot of trolls and Nazis came back. The larger effect has been the deliberate behavior of the regular users to try to sink this fucking platform out of resentment at Musk. But let's talk about why that is. Uh, he, He has done some stuff right from the start that's just been mind-bogglingly difficult to comprehend like it's hard to conclude anything except that that he is a spoiled toddler who knows nothing about anything and can't run a business to save his fucking life so the big thing of course if you haven't been following it is elon's big project from week one of taking over twitter was that he wants to do away with the verification system as we know it up until now If you are a public figure of any kind, a government official, a journalist, a performer, even a a content creator with a certain size of following, whatever, if you're like a a person that someone else might want to uh, harass by creating a fake version of your account and fooling people into thinking it was you, 
you could get this blue check mark that verifies that you are the person you claim to be. Correct. So Elon's big project upon taking over the company was to do away with the system completely. And this seems to come from some resentment of the perceived elitism of the blue checkmark system. And this is a right-wing trope. This is a weird Twitter troll trope that blue checkmarks are somehow the... Um, I think I saw someone on Twitter say uh, this, they see it as a signal that you're like a, a liberal scold. You think you're better than they are. You're a, um, you know part of the mainstream media, which means the liberal biased media or something like that. I don't know. They have a fucking thing about blue check marks. They hate them. The the blue check mark literally exists. I mean, I guess people that have the check marks get some account features that we plebeians don't enjoy. Right. Um, right. But and there is some stuff about like who gets a blue check mark and who doesn't right, and all right, that. There right. I mean that it's not like a it wasn't a perfect system. Well, yeah, but also like I could try to start a Wikipedia page for myself and it would get right. taken down and they'd say this is not a person of significance or no. You know what I mean? Right. Like right. Uh, right. I would disagree with that assessment, but you know what? <laughs> we don't always get to say. So right off the bat, Elon was saying that you're gonna have to he's gonna charge people. 20 bucks a month for blue check marks. Mm-hmm. Stephen King starts tweeting that he's not going to fucking pay 20 fucking bucks. He didn't say it literally like that, but that was the essence of his sentiment. Yeah. That there's no fucking way I'm going to pay 20 bucks or any amount of money for a stupid check mark. And Elon jokingly, seriously, it's it was unclear at the time, said, how about $8? And that became the price. Now, Elon claims that the premise here is that it will democratize things because anyone can buy a check mark, and you know you won't feel like there's the Twitter haves and have nots. It's affordable. It's only eight dollars, and somehow uh, this will cut down on trolls and bots. He really wants to cut down <laughs> on the bots. He keeps talking about the scammers and the bots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is because. He has 10 million or whatever the fuck followers on his account. So every time he tweets something, there's 100,000 replies that are bot accounts that are like, right. free crypto, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, right. Twitter is overrun with bot accounts and scams. Right. And you're like, yeah, right. your, your Twitter is. But anyway, this obviously makes no sense at all. And every single person on Twitter was like, this makes no sense at all. Yes. $8 for a check mark rather than... Uh, deterring bots and scammers will give bots and scammers an opportunity to have a blue check mark so that they can't be differentiated from legitimate accounts and they will impersonate accounts and it will only enable their scams and Correct. it's just ridiculous. Correct. Okay. It seemed like a bad idea, but there's just so <laughs> many more layers to this than this guy had a bad business idea. We have to be clear. Number one, Days before he launched this, it's called Twitter Blue, where you pay eight bucks a month for the check mark. Just a few days before Twitter Blue was launched, the trust and safety team at Twitter prepared a seven-page list of warnings about what could happen and recommendations for how to prevent them. This information is from an article Casey Newton and Zoe Schiffer on Platformer got a hold of yes. this document, and they published this yes. whole thing about it just today. And... You know, these recommendations were looked at and considered, but they did not 
Twitter did not adopt any of the recommendations that would delay the launch of Twitter Blue. You know, Musk was originally talking about making it about 100 bucks a year. But after the exchange with Stephen King, dropped it to $8 a month. So, like, even his initial idea of, like, well, if people have to pay money, it will deter scammers. It's like, when you make the bar $8, yes, like, who wouldn't pay $8 anyone. for just for the lulls, just for the chance to have a laugh, people will impersonate whoever. And guess what? They, they are. They did. They are. <laughs> yeah. So some of the outstanding ones were like someone created an Eli Lilly account and <laughs> tweeted, insulin is now free, basically. And um, guess what? Eli Lilly pulled all of their ads and their money from Twitter. Because their stock prices dove. Like their actual stock prices went like, right? Just and then this is one of my this is one of my favorites, Chiquita Brands. (laughs) We've just overthrown the government of Brazil. And then Chiquita itself writes back and says, we apologize to those who've been served a misleading message from a fake Chiquita account. We've not overthrown a government since 1954. Is that, was the second one from the real Chiquita account? (laughs) That's a good sense of humor from them. It really is. Also, like, kind of terrible because it's true. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. What? This is my... My favorite Ted Cruz one. Oh my god! Oh my god! The the Ted Cruz impersonation <laughs> account was fucking gold. During the winter freeze, I left Texas because many people lost power and were cold. It was uncomfortable for me because I live in the walls of your house. <laughs> so people have been going to town with this stuff, trying. I to... mean, it's the best internet since Bernie, it... since the Bernie memes right, <laughs> after right the since inauguration. The it's making a point though they're trying to demonstrate that like well they're they're doing two things one is making a point that this purchasable verification system is a terrible idea and is going to cost twitter money and the other thing is they're accomplishing the destruction of twitter by driving advertisers away and just trying to make hell like life hell for elon musk yes but Elon Musk is doing so much on his own to destroy Twitter beyond just creating the situation for all of these shenanigans. Right. I mean, one of the things that we predicted was a lot more porn, and it's mostly just chaos. It's like it's but like the porn is the monkeys. coming. I'm telling oh, it's, you, sure, the porn sure, is sure. But there's this real like like kids taking over. It's like prankster oh, day. Yeah. Like no, it is the, it is the sub. You have a sub at school today. Yes, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. Nobody is in control of this classroom. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, immediately after taking over the company, Musk fired 50% of the workforce. And a week later, just recently, he fired 80% of the contract workers, which drastically cut down the number of moderators. That's right. So if your premise is that uh, impersonation accounts aren't going to be a problem because they will get banned or deleted. I don't know who he thinks is going to do That's that. That's right. But also, he seems to have no grasp of the actual technology that he has no. on his hands or what it takes to actually accomplish any of these ideas that he wants to implement. For example, 
with the blue check marks, what he wanted was to make it so you have to pay for one. So now you can pay for one. However, all the people who already had a blue check mark because they were verified users, their check marks haven't gone away. Now, why would that be? Well, it's because according to this uh, article in Platformer, the company lacks any automated way to remove verified badges from user accounts. There's nothing in the system, in the code, that allows you to automatically just remove all of those verified badges. You would have to build that with some and then he just fired doesn't exist. Everyone, okay, <laughs> or okay. otherwise you have to just go through one by one and remove the check from each user. Either way, you're talking oh, about a workload man. that is just not feasible. It's not an implementable idea, at least not under the circumstances that he's created there. Yes, yes. Uh, um, he also was like complaining about Twitter working more slowly overseas. And so one of the engineers in charge of that area wrote a Twitter thread explaining carefully why that is and why it can't easily be fixed. And Musk fired that guy. Uh-huh. Just fired him. Yeah. Generally speaking, the engineers at this company are reporting to reporters and on their private Slack channels and anywhere else that they're speaking out that this guy has no fucking clue. He has no clue how this shit works on a technical That's right. level. Okay. Okay. So then here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. Here's the thing. Yes. There's this way that you're supposed to think, I mean, I don't, but you're supposed to think that he made this purchase months ago and then he's had all of these months to make a, I don't know, a plan or something <laughs> like, <laughs> that he's all these months to think about. And even before making an offer on a company, generally people have, especially when you're going to pay $44 billion for it and get in hock to a whole lot of possibly dangerous people, you'd know what what a plan is for it. And you see this guy and it seems like he's not actually working. It seems like he's on Twitter all the time, responding to bullshit in real time, like a child. Like this is like a complete humiliating nightmare for him, no? Like he is showing how bad of a businessman he is in the most public way possible. He's making no good moves. It is Trumpian in its disastrousness it is the comparisons to trump are hard to avoid there's, <laughs> there's a lot of, of similarities there i guess the main difference i would say is that elon actually is wealthy well yeah he actually does have money he it's has true he has like emerald mine money though yeah that's correct um, that's correct okay a lot of his strange behavior i think is well explained by this piece on medium that you maya shared with me by yes. Dave Troy. Yes. And Dave Troy writes that he has been a follower of Jack Dorsey and Twitter for a long, long time. Um, but he had a lot of interesting things to say about his understanding of this deal, Elon's relationship to Jack Dorsey, and Elon's goals overall in this purchase of Twitter. And yeah, yeah. I really wanted to bring it up because I see a lot of people talking about this and um, there's this understanding of like, okay, Elon uh, is an idiot. 
he's not that good a businessman, actually. He he spent all this money on this thing that he doesn't know anything about, and he's going to drive it into the ground and bankrupt himself. And I don't see anything wrong with that analysis and correct about that analysis per se, but I think there might be a, a, another dimension to it, which is like Elon doesn't care about losing advertisers or he thought he wouldn't care. For him, this isn't a business venture. He's not trying to make money off of Twitter. This is some kind of, he thinks, piece of the puzzle, step toward this utopian future that he's going to usher in for humankind. Yes. Yes. Okay. Back to the cult leader. Back to like, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah. So the Dave Troy article is all about how like actually this isn't about making money. This is about this big fantasy that a lot of these technologists share that, and it starts, the framing of the article is like, hey, Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey aren't competitors. They're collaborators. Mm -hmm. They're both fantasists about this idea called long-termism, which is this like fantasy of like how they're going to make the world survive in the and that's why it's more important to go to mars than to plant trees i mean they're like to be specific like long-termism is the belief that the only thing that matters is humanity's future in space it's like yes colonizing space and like what goes on in the world right now it doesn't matter it's not important unless it relates to the future survival and thriving of humans specifically in fucking space. Yes. So it sounds like it's like a great excuse for someone who doesn't understand or give a shit about anything to not have to give a shit about anything except his space rockets. Yes. Um, Yes. But he's also a technologist, which is to say that he believes in technical solutions as in technological solutions like he thinks if there's problems with moderation on twitter the moderating he thinks if there's problems with spam or bots or a a robot a robot can solve it a robot will solve it there's too many liberals with check marks that are making fun of you technology will solve it not that he knows how to write code or anything but somehow if he prevails upon his engineers to sleep in their offices enough, uh, technology will solve these problems. So you have this combination of uh, long-termism and technologism. Yes. Yes. And then Troy also mentions this thing that uh, Musk seems to buy into, which is the multipolar world order, which took me a minute to get my head around. Okay. But the gist of it basically seems to be a kind of libertarianism on a global scale. Okay. A kind of like, let Putin do Putin. Let them do what they want to do. Free speech. Is going to solve all of it. Is going to solve all of it. But yes. but it's like non-governmental. It's yes. really weird because he's like, let Putin do what he wants, but small government. Right. Right? Which right. is like, I don't right. think Putin wants small government. I don't think no. Putin wants free no. speech. Like, that's not what he's doing. But somehow that's okay, and the contradiction there doesn't matter. But that's why um, Musk is very opposed to basically any kind of government oversight. Well, but he also seems to think of it as a way of breaking free from 
like, even if I don't make money on this, I am going to have world control. So back to the sort of megalomaniacal, like cult leader fantasies, like I'm going to take over this place, which is where the influence makers and the writers and the culture makers and the news people all are. And I'm going to unleash free speech on them to take care of any kind of leftist tendencies. And through that, I am going to control the world. And I feel like even if you're like, you know what, I'm not going to make money off of this, but I'm doing it to control the world. You'd think you'd still have a plan. And that's where you're like, no, this guy's a fucking idiot. Like, yeah, everything that makes the machine run is falling apart. I think he genuinely believes that when all the dust settles, nobody's going to really leave Twitter. The people will stay because they love Twitter and there's no replacement for Twitter. And he wants to control that the public square. He wants to control yes. the arena of speech. Yes. And it's very dangerous. It's terrifying. He's creating a situation uh, that is unstable and unsafe. He has fired or driven away a lot of the folks uh, who who play the roles at Twitter like safety, like user yes. safety. And then I think that Elon thought like user safety is this kind of like thing for woke leftists. And no, no. it's actually this thing that businesses want if they're going to advertise or participate. The people who you think are the, you know, in his weird Ayn Randian fantasies, all the people who are running the engine of the world, they also want safety and moderation. And it's like... But safety isn't just like safety from harassment. It's literally like, I'm going to give you my credit card information. Yes. So I can yes. pay you this $8 for yes. Blue. And you yes. have just fired the people who can do anything to make sure my credit Absolutely. card information stays Absolutely. protected. And, and if all these people are just impersonating me, why am I going to pay you money to be on a platform where I don't even have any kind of stability of my brand? Right. Like, what is going also, on? He's also talked very openly about... If he's ever able to remove the verified check marks for the non-paying users, he he wants people who haven't paid for Twitter Blue, their tweets will sort of be not shadow banned, but it's like if you do a search, the verified users, i.e. the ones who have paid, their stuff will come up first. When you click on a tweet and look at the responses, you'll see the verified users first. So anyone who doesn't pay will have their tweets shunted to the bottom, to the back, not seen as easily. He even he even compared it to having them sent to a spam folder. Right. Well, people aren't going to like that. Like, no. Uh, above <laughs> and beyond, like, the brands pulling out and, like, major advertising agencies telling corporations... Do, stay away from here for now. Like, do not advertise on Twitter right now. Yes. Hold back. Yes. Um, yes. Aside from all of that and the major loss of revenue associated with that, and like 90% of Twitter's revenue is advertising revenue. But in addition to that, what you will see is users who are become frustrated with the experience because yes. they're not going to want to pay $8 either as a matter of principle or a matter of what they can afford. And so they're not going to enjoy not getting any traction on their tweets and they're not going to like the platform anymore and they're going to leave it. Like he's clearly announced that he wants to make it an unpleasant experience for users. Yeah. 
it seems like there's no way it can work out. But then we get to the question of what does he like? Why (laughs) is it then that people think, oh, he's playing 14 dimensional chess or whatever they ascribe to Trump as well? Mm -hmm. That there's got to be a plan. It can't be that somebody with this much money and this much power is that fucking stupid. You just said it. it. Yeah. That's what they think. It's very interesting to me to see all the articles, like the articles on Bloomberg and uh, MIT Technology Review and a lot of different pretty well-respected sources on economics, business, technology, And they're all just like, this is the dumbest shit we've ever seen. Obviously, they don't phrase it that way. But that's my summary of what I've been reading from every angle. Nobody's fooled. Everyone's like, we don't know what he's doing. This is terrible. It's not going to work out. That's right. MIT Technology Review is talking about eventual, if not imminent, just catastrophic technological failure because there's nobody there to maintain the systems. Yes. So in addition to losing advertisers... In addition to losing users, you have the very real possibility of actual just like technical failure of the Which system. Which happened today where everybody who uses two-factor verification was locked out of their account for hours That's today. Right. That's right. Like, like the basic stuff that makes it go. He also announced a code freeze. Now, from what I understand, code freezes are common so that new code doesn't just get implemented and then, you know, with bugs and then break up the system. Right. So usually doing a code freeze, you can write code, but not implement it yet. Okay. He started a total code freeze, meaning his engineers can't even write code. They cannot have any access to the system. (laughs) Now, is this... Because he's afraid of, like, sabotage <laughs> from within the company. Right. Which well, is realistic. it's possible uh-huh. because so many of his, like, so many of the Twitter employees, even the ones who weren't fired, are like, this guy doesn't know anything about how this is going on. So then the question becomes, he's completely broken this toy that he bought. Mm-hmm. Even if he didn't want to make money from it, even if he wanted to use it as a sphere of influence, he could control. He can't He's control blown it. it up. He can't control it. He doesn't even know how. He's not even doing like a real person who really wants to control is going to learn how the machine works right. so he can control like, it. That's There's zero the thing, of that right? there. He never spent 10 minutes being like, how does this work so I know how to control? Like zero. I think he is just dumber than even we thought. Like, I think he's actually incredibly stupid. But I do also wonder to what extent blowing shit up might be the point. Okay. So there we go. This might be me still trying to give him more credit than he deserves. But I do think that he wants to blow up journalism. That's one of the institutions that's like, I guess, not part of his multipolar world order vision. Uh, Right. And... He sees the blue check mark thing as a big part of that. He tweeted about how no longer will these um, media outlets have a monopoly on information. Now, citizen journalists, blah, 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 which is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Look, yeah. look we, we, 
we can have a conversation about citizen journalism if that's what you want to have a conversation about because that's a great thing. But that's not what he's actually talking about. He's talking no. about bozos sitting on their couches saying, was Paul Pelosi really like, attacked? Those are yeah, not yeah, yeah, citizen yeah. journalists. Yeah. Those are yeah. just Those are just assholes. conspiracy theorists. Yeah, with opinions. Nut jobs. And he wants to not moderate them. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're not doing any research. They're not doing any investigation. They're not doing any journalism. So when he does things like that and says things like that, it starts to feel like... There is an agenda of a kind here. It's not just totally random, I'm an idiot, I don't know how to run a company. Like there is clearly an agenda in that he wants to control the information sphere. But it seems like if if the platform itself can no longer exist, it seems like that's not working well for him. Like you still need it to be operating. Right, right. If you're going to have <laughs> dude bro on his couch being like, Paul Pelosi is gay, you still need a place for him to post it and people who will listen to right. it. Right. It does seem like he's sinking the whole thing. Yeah. And I don't know how that benefits even his most insane megalomaniacal impulses. There's just, it's so much to think through when someone else is being so stupid so publicly. It's hard to get your head around. The answer might be that we just wasted all this time talking about it. And the simple answer is he's just that dumb. Yeah. And I believe it. I really believe it. I think he wanted to like fight the woke mob and the woke left and all of the people who are like, White men in power are just fucking stupid, but he's not helping his cause at all. Listeners, what do you think? You gotta let us know. Have you deactivated yet? Find me on Mastodon. Are you still on Twitter? Are you on Mastodon? Can you help me learn how to use Mastodon? Oh, it's it's not that hard. Do you think that this is the end of Twitter? Also... What is your favorite impersonation account that you've seen over the past week or yes. two? And the funniest, funniest tweet. If you join us on Patreon, because we've been starting to ask our friends who are still on Twitter to just throw them our way. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to join that conversation, come to patreon.com slash sauce podcast, join us. At any level of contribution, you can come on the Sauce Speakeasy and share with us the most hilarious shit that you've found. We want to laugh until we cry. And um, you can also, of course, email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can at this time still find us on Twitter and Instagram as at saucepodcast. You can find me at Maya Garantz. Anywhere you are looking for Maya Garances, except for Twitter and Facebook. I'm not there. I'm just not there. You can find me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. I am still on Twitter. I am also on Mastodon. By the way, also share with us your favorite, the red wave that wasn't win. Is there a little house race or a little state senate race where you're like, you know, not many people will appreciate. In fact, I will share one right now. You know, I'm always looking for places where a small donation will go far. Uh, A friend of mine who's from Montana told me that there is a woman running for Supreme Court Justice of Montana who is in the 4-3 vote to maintain abortion access in Montana. She's like the four of the 4-3. So if she had lost that, Montana's abortion access would be gone. Wow. 
And all of the surrounding states, Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas, already have lost abortion access. So for Montana to maintain its abortion access is, is critical. And so I sent, you know, a hundred bucks because it'll <laughs> go far in a race like that. And she won. Oh, that to great. me is one of my little comforting, you probably don't know about this election, but I do. And I want to share it with you. Share us yours. We'd love to see you on the Soft Speakeasy or and hear from you on whatever other platforms you prefer. And if you are leaving Twitter, let us know where you're going. Yeah, please. All right, our friends. Talk to you soon. Adios, amigas.